If you have children or you've ever been involved in some kind of children's work or your school settings or after school care, uh, kids camps, anything like that, you know that, you know, kids often um, outright just doing sins. You know, sometimes as adults, we can hide our sins. They happen in our heart. But kids, they just they flow on right out there. They steal toys. They hurt each other. They exclude. And generally what has to happen is some kind of leader or teacher has to come alongside get the one child that's hurt the other child and say, okay, now what you need to do is you need to go and say, sorry. And so the kid grumbles along and says, sorry. And then the other kid, they say, you know, you need some kind of reconciliation. So the other kid says something like, that's okay. And then they move on and they kind of, you know, play goes on and kids have a you know, goldfish memory. So it all works out. Uh, but biblically speaking, when it comes to saying, sorry, I realized that, you know, for parenting our kids, so that kind of isn't really what uh, what we're meant to do. It's not the, the highest. It's good, but there's better. Uh, but the better is actually a lot harder uh, because what we're biblically called to do is not just say, I'm sorry, but is to say something like, will you please forgive me? Will you please forgive me? And that often is a lot harder, I think, for someone to say. I don't know if you've ever had to say it to someone. Saying I'm sorry can kind of be a bit like, well, I'm sorry that you know, you're hurt, or I'm sorry that you felt bad about what I did. But when we come to someone and say, will you please forgive me? It's an admission that I have a debt to you, that I've done something wrong, and and you need to release me from this debt. And then sometimes even harder, rather than just saying, that's okay, like it's sort of like just wiping it clean. the, The proper biblical response when someone says, I'm sorry, is to say, I forgive you. I forgive you. That is, I let it go. Uh, I I raise this debt that is between us and I welcome you back. It's hard. Reconciliation is hard, whether you're three or 30 or however old you are. It is hard to admit that you've sinned against someone and it's hard and maybe even harder to actually forgive someone when they repent. And as we come to today's passage, We are taught by Jesus how to forgive. And that's the title of this message, how to forgive. Because in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is realistic. We cannot avoid sin in the new kingdom community, that is the church. But in Jesus's love for us and for the disciples, he provides a way for us to humbly and lovingly deal with it for the good of all. So as a little church, we can't avoid sin. In our life groups, if we really do life together and we actually have fellowship and it's more than just, uh, hey, good to see you and move on to the next person, we will sin against one another. So what are we going to do? How are we going to resolve it? Well, Jesus, our pastor, gives us the method here in Matthew 18, 21 to 35. You see, this passage follows last week where we looked at if your brother sins against you, Or if someone is straying into sin, we're called to pursue them like the father pursues us as lost sheep. We're called to, you know, chase people down, so to speak, speak, confront them with their sin and give them a chance to repent. repent. Um, And verses 21 to 35 give us the flip side. What do you do when someone actually repents? See, verses 15 to 20 tell us what to do if they don't repent, okay? Bring someone along, keep going up, keep going up. Eventually, sadly, you have to excommunicate them from the church because they are demonstrating that they're not a Christian because they will not repent of their sin. 
But what do we do as a church community? And what do we do as individuals when someone actually comes to us and says, I have sinned against you. Will you please forgive me? And what do we do if they never even ask? Do we still have to forgive? Well, Jesus is going to deal with all of that in our passage for today. I want to go through this passage in three points. Forgiveness questioned, forgiveness illustrated, and forgiveness applied. Um, We're going to spend most of our time in the applied part, uh, but let's begin now with point number one, forgiveness questioned. So with all this talk of um, confrontation over sin and when our friend sins against us, then repenting, the, uh, the assumption that people are going to repent, Peter brings up a really good question uh, and a question that you might have had to deal with in your own life. Verse 21, let me read it again. And Peter came up and said to him, that is Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, Peter asks obviously a reasonable question. And the reason why he says seven times is actually he's, he's being quite generous. Uh, the, the standard of his day taught by the rabbis was that if someone asks for forgiveness once, you give it. If someone asks the second time, you give it. Um, if someone asks the third time, you give it. But any time after that, you no longer have to forgive. Um, you're free from the debt to forgive. They are clearly not a repentant person. And so, you know, what Peter does is he basically doubles it and adds one. So Peter's sort of like, well, I'm... I'm twice as forgiving as the rabbis, like seven times. Is that how often we're meant to forgive? But what Peter is asking in effect is this. Is there a limit to forgiveness? Is there a limit to the act of forgiving one another? Or when is enough enough, O Lord? When is a sin or action so bad that I'm permitted to withhold forgiveness? Have you ever had the same thoughts as Peter? Do I really have to forgive this person? And do I have to forgive them for that? Do I have to forgive them, A, and then for that? Like that is such a bad action. Do I really have to forgive? Right now in our church, there's likely many of us who for this for who for them, this is not a theoretical or philosophical or theological question. This is a painful one. This is a painful reality. You bear scars, you bear present or past hurts. And even the mention of forgiveness and the thought of having to forgive someone makes your gut churn. And perhaps even makes you anxious or makes you angry. You know, the, the thought of the hurts that have been committed against you starts to bring back all the memories. And so even talking about this is, is causing, a, 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 you know, a feeling within you. Perhaps it's some kind of relational situation you've got with a family member. Maybe hurts from your parents, the way that they brought you up and, and treated you as a child. Hurtful things they may have said to you. Time and time again. Or perhaps it's the things that they never said. They may have provided but never praised. (laughs) They may have given you all you needed but never given you what you needed um, in terms of your emotional life. 
Perhaps even you've experienced some form of physical or sexual abuse, mental, emotional abuse from someone. And you're thinking, how could I ever possibly forgive them for that? In fact, there's no way I possibly could. Maybe in your marriage, you might look like a happy couple on Sundays, but if we were to open the doors of your house and your heart, there's buried hurt, bitterness, and resentment. Maybe you've moved on but never really dealt with it, but there's a bitter root rising up within you because of all that he or she has done to you. You may have old friendships that are lost. You've been betrayed or gossiped or abandoned by people. You've had business deals going wrong or neighbours where things just never resolved. And the question is, is there a limit to my forgiveness? Do I have to forgive them for that? Forgiveness, it's something we know we ought to do, right? It even sounds beautiful and virtuous and lovely. And in the modern psychology, it's something that's promoted as something that's going to be good for you. Um, it's good for your well-being. But when we actually have to do it, it may seem like we're being asked to hike Mount Everest. It also may seem like a dangerous thing. If I forgive, won't it minimize the sin? If I forgive, won't they just betray me again? If I forgive, won't I be saying you get away with it? If I forgive, what will I do with all the pain that I'm feeling? And if we're honest, there can be a certain sick feeling of satisfaction hurt, holding on to past hurts. We want to get revenge, even if it's quiet and silent. When we don't forgive, we get to bring up the offense again and again in our head. We get to reimagine the act and imagine what we'd say or do. We get to hurt them in our hearts, imagining their pain. And sometimes it even plays out in reality. We ice them out. We want them to know that they are living with this debt hanging over them. We can even use it to our advantage. You owe me. Remember when you did that? It's a hard one, this topic. And so Jesus gives us an answer and an extended parable to start working on our hearts. Look at Jesus' reply to Peter's question in verse 22. So Peter asked, is there a limit to forgiveness? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, obviously, Jesus is not saying 78th. Now, now you're free from forgiveness because otherwise, you know, as parents, you know, that would be about two weeks. That'd be the school holidays. And then you're done. Or maybe one week of the school holidays, you never have to forgive them again. For all that they've done, you're free. Now, what Jesus is actually doing is most likely he's using a play on words going back to one of the oldest stories of vengeance in the Old Testament. Um, when Cain killed his brother Abel out of revenge, uh, God was merciful to Cain and actually said that if anyone avenges your life, I will bring vengeance on them sevenfold. And then one of Cain's descendants, a, a, a bad dude named Lamech, he took this to the next level and he was boasting in how vengeful he was. He was not forgiving. He was full of wrath and vengeance. And in Genesis 4.23, Lamech said this to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. 
I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Lamech is puffing his chest and boasting that of his vengeance and brutality. The slightest offense, offense will be met with limitless vengeance. You strike me, I murder you. And we're seeing this play out in our city right now in the Parramatta area. There's a gangland war going on. People are being mowed down in the streets out of revenge and out of brutality. But now Jesus is saying, in the complete opposite of Lamech, the greatest offenses will be met with limitless forgiveness. Don't just forgive seven times, but forgive 70 times, seven times, 77 times, whatever the original meant. The point is, it's limitless forgiveness. And so to illustrate his point on the limitless nature of forgiveness, he tells a story to draw us in and change our heart. Because likely he knows for all of us how hard true repentance and forgiveness is. He knows that we want vengeance and justice. And so he tells this incredible hyperbolic story to get to our hearts. So that's point number one, forgiveness questioned. Point number two now, forgiveness illustrated. And we're going to look at the story um, verses 23 to 35 split into three parts. There's sort of three scenes to this story, and each scene kind of draws us in and and is meant to change us as we read it. And all I want to do in this section is just reread that story again and make some brief explanatory comments. And then in point three, I'm going to seek to apply it, how this works out practically. So let's enter the story with Jesus. Therefore, verse 23, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So you imagine there's this grand king with his palace and his throne bringing before him all of his subjects and anyone that's borrowed money from him, now he's looking back and going, oh, you owe me this, you owe me that. And then one is brought before him who owes him 10,000 talents. In modern day terms, that would be bazillions, right? (laughs) A talent, your, your Bible probably has a little footnote at the bottom saying one talent equals 20 years wages for a laborer. Uh, Therefore, we're talking 10,000 talents is 200,000 years worth of income for the average, you know, laborer. It's an incomprehensible amount of money. It's an amount of money that you probably couldn't even borrow. It's hyperbolic. It's to say more than you could ever imagine this amount of money, bazillions and gazillions. In fact, at the time, it was more than the entire tax bill of the entire Palestine region that was paid to Caesar. So that's how much money this man owed. Verse 25, since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now, in the ancient world, when you had a debt, uh, you didn't have, you couldn't go bankrupt, you couldn't default on your loans and just, you know, call it quits and go into this insolvent stage. What actually happened was, in terms of getting justice for the person who lost out on all their money, you would be sold as a slave. So you could be sold in the slave market and be bought, and then they could 
recoup some of their money, either by having you as a slave or selling you to another slave owner. It was, um, you know, in some ways, a cheaper way, you know, sending people to prison costs you money, uh, but selling someone as a slave enables them to actually, you to get some of the money back, to have some of their labor back. And so his whole family is sold into slavery. There's no way he can pay any of it back. Verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. It's a powerful and pathetic scene. He's on his knees pleading to pay back 200,000 years worth of wages. Um, if you type in the average wage for Australia, uh, the minimum wage, and then times it by 200,000, that's how many years, your calculator um, will tell you something like, 10e to the power of 26. It's this number that your calculator, my phone didn't have enough zeros spaces on it to be able to compute that number. He can't pay it back. He's saying I can do it, but he's just, he's pleading for mercy. And what does this good king do? Verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him, released him and forgave him the debt. Pity and compassion moves this gracious king. That amount of money is incomprehensible. And so this amount of mercy is also incomprehensible. To let that kind of debt go was demonstrating this king's true compassion and love. And this is a good moment to just explain or define what forgiveness is. Uh, that's why if you remember the old versions of the, um, you might have prayed the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us or debtors against us. Aaron Cerrone um, quotes and, and defines forgiveness like this. Forgiveness is a decision and a promise to release a person by cancelling the real debt the person has with you. So sins are like debts that we owe. And when you forgive someone, you're cancelling that debt. That's the end of scene one. It's a beautiful scene, but Jesus isn't done with us. Let's look at scene number two, verse 28 to 31. But when that same servant went out, look what he does immediately. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, that is about three to six months worth of wages, and seizing him, Look at this. He began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant, and notice the same words, fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But how does he respond? Verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. But when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. So we're drawn into this story. We think, oh, what an incredible display of mercy. But now we're disgusted. How dare he? How dare he not forgive? How dare he demand that debt? Our heart should be saying, how dare he choke another man? He's just been forgiven 10,000 talents. Now, three months wages, he's going to choke a dude out and send him to prison. 
And we're meant to be like the servants, greatly distressed. Then scene number three. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? That's the, the key verse in this whole story. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers, that is literally the torturers, until he should pay all his debt, i.e. he's never getting out. And so this final scene now brings the justice. Scene two, we're revolted by the injustice. Now the justice comes back. And it is somewhat confusing. I thought he forgave the debt, but now he's charging it back to him. Um, Jesus sees no contradiction in this, that this was a perfectly legitimate thing for the king to do. And we see that the principle of this story is, is clear. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And so this story is designed to draw us in. We see the king with the debt. We're outraged by the unforgiving servant. And then we're sort of satisfied that he gets his comeuppance. But who are we in this story? Peter is asking, how forgiving should I be, Lord? What's the limit? Are we the king? (laughs) Are we the servant who's just got three to six months worth of wages that we owe? I think what Jesus is trying to do is say, we are the person who owes 10,000 talents. We're that guy. And anytime we do not forgive, that is who we are like. We're choking people out, saying, pay what you owe. Because our limitless debt has been released, therefore our forgiveness is to be likewise limitless. That's the power of this story. That's the illustration Jesus is drawing us in with. So point number three then, forgiveness applied. So that's an illustration of the forgiveness, but point number three, forgiveness applied. What are we meant to do with this passage? It's easier said than done. I believe that there's three applications uh, that I, I want us to draw out from this passage, and we'll go through them one by one. And we'll just spend the rest of our time trying to meditate and nut this out. How do we actually go about living this out? And we're going to go from reverse, from end to beginning. So we're going to start with the end of the story and apply it and go back to the beginning. So application point number one, be warned. Application point number one, the first thing we are meant to receive from this passage is this. We are to be warned. Jesus, is, Jesus finishes the story with this clear application in verse 35. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if, conditional, you do not forgive your brother from your heart. As one commentator aptly put it, the application of this passage is forgive or else. 
This passage is a warning story, and it has a warning for you and I. Remember that this story is not told to the Pharisees. It's not told to Pilate. It's not told to the Gentiles. This story is told to Peter and the 12 disciples. This is a story for the church, not for the world. This is a warning that ought to cause us to sit up and listen because he's speaking to us. And Jesus is saying, unforgiveness is an incredibly dangerous thing. Unforgiveness in your heart indicates that your eternal future is actually in jeopardy. It's a warning. Just as a stubborn and proud refusal to repent, as we saw last week with the church discipline passage, leads to severe consequences, excommunication, even more so, Jesus says, the refusal to forgive. So if you do not repent, severe consequences. But if you do not forgive, even more so is the severity of the consequence. I think from this passage, you could say this. According to Jesus, there is no such thing as an unforgiving Christian. According to Jesus, from this passage and from elsewhere teaching, there is no such thing as an unforgiving Christian. It's a contradiction. This point is repeated elsewhere by Jesus. We've already seen it in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6. After he teaches them how to pray, he says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Luke 17.3, pay attention to yourselves. So sit up. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The point is clear, unmistakable and unmissable. If we are a forgiven follower of Jesus, we must also forgive. It's not optional. It's not avoidable. It's not negotiable. So let me ask you, is there anyone right now you need to forgive, big or small? Are you holding on to any grudge, any grievance, any hurt or any offence? Jesus here is warning you and commanding you to forgive. But you may be thinking, do I need to forgive if they haven't asked for forgiveness? What about that? What do we do with that situation? And that's something that's always confused me. And I appreciated having the time this week to study it. I think it's a really good question and a hard one. What I believe that the Bible teaches is that there's probably at least two aspects to forgiveness. And I think we see them both in this passage. So if, if someone comes to you and says, please forgive me, Jesus is saying you must forgive them. That's the action of forgiveness. But there's also the attitude of forgiveness, the heart of forgiveness. And that's where Jesus is really driving at in this passage. You know, Peter asks, is there a limit to forgiveness? How many times do I have to actually 
forgive someone. And Jesus tells a story to change our heart so that we have a forgiving heart. We have the attitude of forgiveness. Because heart forgiveness precedes the actual action of forgiving. If you ever actually forgive someone, you're going to have to do it in your heart first or eventually. And that's why Jesus ends in verse 35 and says, you must forgive your brother, not just with the words, I forgive you, it's okay, but from your heart. And there's a text in Mark 11.25, which I think helps us with this. So if you've been sinned against and that person has never come to you for forgiveness, well, I think you can still forgive them in your heart. And that's not a cop out. Uh, It's actually required. Mark 11.25 says this. And whenever you stand praying, let me pause. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your father who also is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. The implication is this. You're not able to, when you're in the middle of prayer and someone comes to your heart that's sinned against you, you're not to go off, you know, you can go off and seek restoration. But in that moment, if someone has a hurt or a pain against you, Jesus is saying in your heart, in that time, forgive them. Release the debt. Another example of this, and and won't come up on your screen, but when Jesus is being crucified, what did he call out from the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. No one in that crowd was asking for his forgiveness. Oh, sorry, Jesus, for putting the nail in your wrist. No, but Jesus still forgives them from his heart. Now, forgiveness There's no way that this is easy for great offences, even small ones. Forgiveness is a process. It takes time for our hearts to change. I spoke to someone recently who's gone through a lot of difficult relational circumstances, and I wanted her perspective because I trust her, I respect her, and I wanted to see what she thought about this process of forgiveness. And she said this, forgiveness is a process. You may think it's done but it can sweep back powerfully. Keep giving it to the Lord time and time again if necessary, but eventually it becomes easier. The sting of hurt and betrayal dims. The supernatural love of the Lord to forgive me washes over me, and I can move closer to the feelings of forgiveness. Knowing that I have obeyed Jesus in the first instance, even when I don't feel forgiving. I don't think you can get to be if you've not done A, that is forgive as commanded. And what she's saying is this, is that the feelings may not be there first, but the obedience must come and then the feelings may follow. It's a process, a hard process. Aaron Cerrone, a biblical counselor with CCF, said this, we should not wait for our feelings to catch up our need to forgive. They may never catch up. We must not put up with mercilessness when we see it in our hearts. We must not be gentle or tolerant here. Take your soul to task. Forgiveness is obedience. And we should cry out to God for help as we wrestle with a lack of desire to obey. And if we make the decision to forgive, 
Our feelings most often follow our lead. Is there anyone, my friends, in our church, in your family, in your past, that you need to forgive from your heart? Do you have an outstanding debt that you have not yet released? Jesus here is warning you. Jesus here is warning you. And if you are hearing this, take this warning seriously. If you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart, you will not be forgiven by him. There's no such thing as an unforgiving Christian. Sounds harsh. Sounds unfair. It may even sound dangerous, but it's what Jesus says. And we must obey him whether we feel like it or not. So that's application point number one be warned. Be warned. Application point number two going back in the story now be revolted. Be revolted. This story is designed to shock and disgust us. We're drawn into the story and then we are recoiling at the servant's actions. We're meant to enter in and look and think, how could he possibly do that? What's wrong with him? From slavery to freedom, and then he goes out searching for someone who owes him a debt. And then when he finds him, he grabs him around the throat and chokes him, demanding with sickness in his heart, pay what you owe. And then when the, when the, the person that owes him pleads, oh, have mercy on me, have patience, forgive me, I'll, I'll pay you back. No, the mercilessness, the, the forgiveness is limited and he throws him in prison, potentially the same prison that he was just in. We are to be revolted by this. We are meant to be disgusted. We're meant to be like the servants, distressed. It's meant to shock us. It's meant to look at us and think, we're meant to look at him and go, I don't want to be like that man. I don't want to be like him. And it's meant to make us realize that anytime we withhold forgiveness, we are that man. We are just like him. And if anyone knows about the situation, if anyone is looking on and seeing your unforgiveness, they're watching you potentially in disgust also. Maybe in your marriage, your kids are seeing you not forgive one another. And effectively, they're watching you strangle and choke each other, demanding, pay what you owe. Friends and family, relational discord that, that could be fixed with forgiveness. Instead, people are around watching you with your hands around their throat, choking them out. Perhaps you know someone who's unforgiving and it should disgust you, should lead you to potentially chase them down and, and plead with them to forgive someone. And especially if it's in your own soul, in your own life. If you are holding on to any unforgiveness, be revolted. 
Repent of your unforgiveness and forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Let this story, scene two, be a mirror to help you see yourself. Let it be a mirror to protect us as a church that we would see this as a dangerous sin, that we would see this as a dangerous reality, that if there's anyone within our community that is harboring unforgiveness to one another, that we would be distressed by it. And finally, application point number three, so that was be revolted. Finally, be moved. Be moved. We've been warned. We're disgusted. But the way Jesus began the story is he wants to move our heart. How do we grow to be a forgiving people? How do we grow to be the people that overflows with limitless forgiveness? Where do we get that kind of power from? Well, the power to forgive flows from knowing how deeply we've been forgiven. That's how you could summarize, um, I think, the the intent of this passage, that the power to forgive flows from knowing how deeply we've been forgiven. To change our hearts to be merciful, we need to survey again the mercy we have received. We need to see that we're not just three to six months worth of wages of sin in our life, um, that we are that debtor. The king is God. We're the ones with 10,000 talents worth of sin, debt innumerable to God, debt unpayable to God, such crippling debt that we deserve every punishment. We're to see ourselves that we're that guy, 10,000 talents worth of debt. We need to kind of enter this story and imagine again, and work with me in this. Imagine this morning you are standing before God the King, before you're in Christ, and he's settling accounts with you. And maybe if you're not yet a Christian, this is the reality. Picture this. He gets the ledgers. He gets the books out and he calls your name. And then there's a library of books, ledger upon ledger upon ledger of every debt you owe him. Every sin you've ever committed is tallied up one by one, beginning with your sinful thoughts. Every sinful, lustful thought, every proud moment, every moment of bitterness, every bit of internal rage and road rage or rage at work or rage in the family. All the moments collectively of selfishness and self-centeredness. Then there's the actions, the painful words we've uttered, the money perhaps we've stolen, the people we've hurt, the people we've cheated on, the disobedience we've done against our parents, people we've fought verbally, physically, our drunkenness, our acts of sexual immorality, our false worship, following false religions, adopting false beliefs. And then there's all the deeds we've left undone. All the minutes and hours and weeks of our life that we have not loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength when we have not gone to the nth degree to love our neighbor as ourselves, when we've not shared, given, cared, called each other, visited, 
and helped. And all the sins are tallied up, 10,000 talents. And then we plead for mercy. We come before the king on our knees and we say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then, as Paul paints it so vividly in Colossians 2, 13 to 14, this is what has happened to us. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, this king doesn't just say your debt is forgiven. He doesn't just say, okay, let's move on. The way all of our 10,000 talents worth of debts were forgiven, the way all of our sins were forgiven is they were nailed through the hands of the king. Our sins that we committed are placed upon him. The record of debt that is ours is nailed against him upon the cross. And because it's nailed upon him, it is paid in full. And all of our debt is justly paid for and can never be paid again by us or anyone else. It is finished. It is cancelled. It no longer stands against us. And so we are forgiven. We are released. We are set free. And all of our future sins are wiped clean in that one amazing moment upon Calvary. And so it is here by the blood of Jesus Christ, standing at the foot of Calvary, as we survey our record of debt nailed to his body, we have the power then to forgive, no matter what has been done to us. That's where the power to forgive flows from, not from mustering it up, not from, you know, just grinning and bearing, but looking to Jesus and seeing that he bore our sins and forgave them all. So now we can forgive like he has forgiven us. As the master said, should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? If we have a small view of our sin, if we think, oh, we've just got three to six months wages that we owe God, we can make it up. We'll have a small view of mercy toward other people. But if we are flawed, if we are crippled even by the weight of forgiveness, then our hearts will be softened to say, like Jesus said upon the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And even if they do know what they're doing, forgive them. The power to forgive, my friends, flows from knowing how deeply we've been forgiven. And while we're here by the cross, if there's anyone here right now who has not repented of their sins, who stands with that weight of sin against them, who knows that, oh, if you were to survey me, if I was to come before the king, I know I'm a sinner. Then can I plead with you? Come to Christ right now. Ask him, forgive me for all my sins and know this. He will cancel the debt today, this very moment. The blood, the precious blood of Christ that was shed for your sins pays it in full and it will not stand against you. So do not delay. If you have any doubt that you are right with God, if you have any doubt that any sins are between you and God right now, that you have any debt to God, do not delay. 
Come to the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Call upon his name and you will be saved. You will be forgiven. And if you are harboring unforgiveness, bitterness and rage in your hearts against someone else, you plead for that same forgiveness and ask for the power to change that you might become a forgiving person. So how do we apply this powerful story? Well, we be warned, we be revolted, and we be moved. And this practice, the practice of becoming a forgiving person, the practice of forgiving from our hearts and practically in our actions, this will preserve and protect our church community. If we ever went through a situation where people had to have these meetings one-on-one or two or three people or even the whole church and we're committing church discipline and that person repents, well, then we need this passage to to protect us that we would then actually forgive that person. Forgiveness doesn't mean that what they did isn't bad. Forgiveness doesn't mean that the relationship just goes back to normal straight away. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we minimize. No, there's 10,000 talents worth of sin. That's what Jesus is saying. It's really bad. But forgiveness does mean we release the debt. Forgiveness does mean that the other person is set free. And as R.T. France said in his great commentary, a community of the forgiven must be a forgiving community. The community of the forgiven must be a forgiving community. So, friends, how often should we forget, forgive? As many as 77 times. There is no limit. And there's no limit to his mercy that he has shown us. And we're going to end in prayer. And then we're going to end reveling in the fact that our debt has been paid incomplete by Christ. Oh, not incomplete. In full, completely by Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray and ask that you would make me and my friends, our church, a forgiving community. Lord, we can't do this on our own. Our hearts are by nature hard. Our hearts are by nature vengeful. Our hearts are by nature unforgiving. So, Lord, soften them. Soften them that we might be able to go through past debts that people have toward us and release them from them. God, I pray and ask that if there's anyone in this church that needs to ask for forgiveness and needs to actually repent for something they've done wrong, that they would be moved to do so and that the person they encounter will be full of your mercy, full of your grace, standing ready to forgive. Protect and preserve our community through the power of forgiveness, O Lord. And I ask that you would move in anyone, O Lord, who is not yet forgiven whom you have not released from their debts because they have not asked, right now, would they plead with you, have mercy on me, a sinner. And, O Lord, would you be pleased to forgive them all their sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.